Good morning, everyone. Welcome to Spin Class. We're talking politics. Your host, Michael Fragan, here on the Nachum Siegel Network, NachumSiegel.com, and on the NSN app. And I am proud, happy to see my good friend, Tevi Troy, uh, the former United States Deputy Secretary of Health and Human Services, as well as a senior White House aide in the Bush 43 administration, who even remembers. Uh, also a presidential historian, author of several books, including the recently released Fight House, uh, which is uh, talks about presidential staffs. Absolutely fascinating book and talks about rivalries within the White House. And I think clearly appropriate for today's day and age, or maybe not for the current administration, but certainly we haven't seen that yet. It's not developed enough, but certainly for the- Forty-five administration. It's bound to happen. Exactly. Tevi, welcome to Spin Class. Great to see you, my friend. Michael, it's so good to see you. Thank you for having me on Spin Class once again. It's a great show, and I really appreciate it. Okay, so there's so much to talk about because really there's so little going on in the world, so we're going to try and you know put everything in historical context. Um, but uh, first and foremost, I guess we have to kind of talk as a fellow Republican. I want to actually also put this in context. We are recording this on Wednesday morning. Uh, it's a pretty momentous Wednesday. Wednesday always seems to be a pretty uh, momentous day in uh, January slash February 21 history. Uh, January... Wednesday, January 6th, we had the, I guess I'm going to call it an insurrection uh, at the Capitol, the rally and insurrection and the confirmation of the Electoral College vote. Uh, the 13th, we had impeachment. Uh, the 20th, we had an inauguration. The 27th was kind of quiet. But today, today, the first Wednesday of February is a somewhat of a reckoning day, potentially, for the Republican Party on the Hill. And... Uh, before we get into the White House and all that policy stuff, let's just talk a little politics, Tevi. You're a Republican veteran. You've uh, been around the party. You served in, uh, the, in the White House. And we have a situation now with two big things, Liz Cheney and uh, obviously her father, a significant part of uh, the administration in which you served, uh, former Vice President Dick Cheney, is uh, kind of, I guess, I don't want to say on trial, but she's having a little bit of a reckoning potentially for losing her leadership position later today. At the same time, you have Marjorie Taylor Greene, who knows, who knew that we would be talking about her so much uh, and has kind of been proudly owning uh, some very out there comments, including some of whom are uh, anti-Semitic. So... The Republican Party, Kevin McCarthy in particular, the uh, minority leader in the House trying to deal with some of both of these issues in the aftermath of the Trump presidency. I know it's a long question, Tevi, but put the put this in context for the is this a battle, a true battle for the soul of the Republican Party? Look, here's what's going to happen. I think in five years, Marjorie Taylor Greene is going to be a trivia question answer. And Liz Cheney is still going to be an important player in Republican politics. That's where it's going if you look historically in big picture terms. Right now, obviously, it's a difficult moment for the Republicans, and they're trying to navigate, figure out what their footing is. This is always an issue after you lose an election. You try and figure out what's going on, who's going to be the leaders, how are you going to approach things. And I have this theory, I call it lose an election, gain a think tank, because we've had so many think tanks develop out of election losses on both the Democratic and Republican side. So I think it is understandably a period of disquiet on the Republican side, and it's an extra period of disquiet on the Republican side because of all, all these challenges and uh, because of the, the former president, the impeachment trial. But it's the kind of thing that I think will sort itself out 
And by 2024, when the Republicans have a new standard bearer, that person will be the face of the Republican Party and not the former president. Well, you're assuming that the former president is not going to run in 2024. I didn't assume he's not going to run. I assume he's not going to be the nominee. <laughs> ah, OK. OK, fair enough. Fair enough. OK, fair question. Uh, well, if you're sitting there as uh, as Kevin McCarthy, OK, you know, this is kind of a damned if you do, damned if you don't situation or you think that there's a way out of this from your perspective. I mean, eventually. I mean, politics should be about addition, uh, not subtraction. You know, very famous, uh, you know, statement out there. Uh, I'm not sure who's attributed. Some James Carville always takes credit for that. But uh, but you're you're going to have a tough time managing a situation where you have the pre- the former president out there uh, on on it on one end. You have, uh, I mean, just for historical context, you have Mitch McConnell delving into internal House Republican politics uh, and uh, playing favorites. Um, You know, these polls that have developed uh, and, you know, in in between is kind of a silent, somewhat silent mass majority of Republicans. I mean, where do you you think the rank and file kind of falls out on this, on these issues? Meaning the, the regular, just Republican uh, you know, Republicans that many, many of whom that we know in Congress who just kind of want to sit there and do their job and legislate. And I think that there was a, um, a great statement from, I think it was actually uh, this past week, I think it was from John Danforth, who said it's a, you know, if you want to, if you want to be on TV and tweet and rabble rouse, this is a great time to be in politics. If you want to get something done. Oh, no, no, sorry. This was Rob Portman, an aide to Rob Portman. Uh, said Rob, if, Portman was Rob Portman's former campaign manager. His former campaign manager. And if you want to get something done, this is a terrible time to be in Congress. So and Rob Portman is confronted with that quote in a live interview. And he said, he said that really? And just started laughing. But it's so true. It's so yeah. true. I mean, what, we, you know, well, I, I think I will. So, so, so let me, I'll give my answer, but I'll just give one minor quibble with what you said. Quibble it's away. Calling out crazy is not constitute playing favorites. I mean, he's saying we shouldn't be in favor of crazy thoughts, crazy ideas, crazy paranoid theories. And, you know, I think he's right to do it. And I think more people should denounce it. I, I personally, well, call me, you know, wild-eyed nut, but I personally don't think that there are Jewish space lasers out there that are creating weather patterns. I assume you don't think that either, Michael, unless you, uh, you know, you own lasers, maybe. I was trying, I'm I'm still trying to figure out, I mean, I know several Jewish people named Laser, but I don't, (laughs) but, but I, I have yet to find any who actually reside in space and who have, uh, who are causing wildfires in California. And, and, and you know what, I think, Tevi, you're bringing up a good point and I I don't want to, get away from the other one. But I think you brought up a good point that many people in our community, particularly people who are have supporters of President Trump and like his policies also have gotten sucked in to this, what I would call this fringe vortex of, of, of crazy. Um, and, I you know, believing these, these I mean, I, space lasers. Right. Well, I, I was just saying, but think about, I mean, people out there, I, I hate to say it, and this doesn't make me, I don't think it makes me a rhino. I think my cred is pretty good. I don't think it makes you a rhino uh, I, to, to say, as you said, to call out crazy. I mean, honestly, talk about this it's... rhino point for a sec? This, this, yes. This is something that bugs me. I, wa- I want to talk about the rhino point. 
I am a conservative Republican. I've always been a conservative Republican. I will always be a conservative Republican. In fact, I, I like to say that I was a Republican before the former president was a Republican, and I will be a Republican after the former president is probably no longer a Republican. But this idea that because Liz Cheney calls out crazy, she's some kind of moderate, she's not a moderate. She is a conservative. And in fact, this goes back a long time. Dick Cheney, when he was in the House, because he was serious about governing, the Washington Post would regularly call him a moderate. And he would fume about this. He would say, will somebody please tell the Washington Post that I am no moderate? So the divide in the Republican Party right now is not between conservatives and moderates. There really are very few so-called moderates. When, when you say moderate, let, you know, let's, let's consider that someone like a, a Mike Castle, who used to be the, the, um, the House member from De Delaware, uh, was, you know, was a moderate Republican. Susan Collins is a moderate Republican, but she's one of very few people who are in that category. The divide is not between moderates and conservatives. The divide is between people who are in the reality-based community and people who are willing to indulge crazy theories, whether they believe them or not, for political purposes. I couldn't have said it better. I, I and I think the the problem is, and I think uh, your former boss called this, you know, truthiness, right? I mean, there was. We really have to have some baseline, and I'm sure. I guess as as you being a historian, there's kind of being an acceptance of what are actual facts and what is fiction or quasi facts or alternative facts. It's another, another new one. There see, there is just a total lack. And I see this particularly around the people who still don't accept the results of people that I know, some of whom I even respect, but it's kind of lessened who still don't accept the, re the results of the 2020 election. Uh, it's, I, I, I don't know. I, I, you know, how do you go? How do you govern together with people who don't have that same acceptance of a fact, a fact base? Because ultimately, right, government has to be about fact. They actually have to do things. They actually have to happen. There's actually real money at stake. There's actually real policy at stake. Right? This and this happened. Right? I mean, we're talking about war and peace, like big issues. And if you can't accept the same facts, the same set of facts, how do we govern? Look, there. I believe, according to public opinion polls, 86% of the American people are normal. They believe in this reality-based approach. They might be liberal, they might be conservative, but they're in this kind of normal world. There's 14%, 8% on one side and 6% on the other side, who are in the extreme categories. And those people, in part because of social media, in part because of cable news, they have been driving the conversation. And we in the 86% of the reality-based community have to stop it and have to say, look, I have a lot more in common with a liberal Democrat who be believes in reality than a radical leftist who doesn't or a radical nutter who believes in space lasers. lasers. I just, you know, where, where do I find common ground? And I may disagree with the liberal on many policies, but we have to agree on what is reality and who actually won elections. And look, this, this happens on both sides. I mean, the, the liberals have also, uh, you know, the radical liberals, the people in the non-reality-based community, have been denying the results of elections too. I mean, Stacey Abrams still doesn't admit that she lost in 2018 in Georgia. And, you know, we had Bob, Barbara Boxer challenging the results in 24. This is all bad. I have to denounce all of it. It's kind of like with the insurrection. Got to be denounced. It's terrible. 
You also have to denounce some of the violent protests over the summer. You have to denounce violence wherever it happens. You have to de denounce lack of reality. You know, I was on um, a podcast um, recently or an interview with a very prominent Jew uh, Jewish Democrat. Um, and we were sort of talking about the issue of anti-Semitism, which is a problem, a growing problem in this country on both the left and the right. And this person started to say, well, on the right, it's really problematic, but on the left, it's just some you know, campus agitators. And I said, no, you've got to denounce it on both sides. It is wrong. If it happens on the left, it's wrong. If it happens on the right. And you've got to be willing to call it out. And, and so I'm going to take a stand here. This is where the 86% of the American people who believe in truth, who believe in reality, who just want to live their lives and pass on a nice life to their children and worship their religion and their communities, that 86% has got to win out over the 14%. So we're, not to beat the dead horse here, but I know I, on this subject, because I do want to move on to other areas of your expertise here, is where do we, what happens to Marjorie Taylor Greene? I guess by the time this podcast airs, uh, we will actually know what happens to her. But where, I mean, what do you, what do you do? What does the party do with somebody who will not, and she's, not the only one with some of these views, but she's the only one who has a long history of these views and is kind of unapologetic about them. But where where do you where do you go? She's elected. She's she's in office. She's the people elected. of the Georgia Sixth. She is elected. It's now February of twenty twenty one. In sometime in mid twenty twenty two, she is going to lose her primary. And another Republican is going to be elected from that very safe Republican district. That's what's going to happen. There were 12 people who ran in that race. It was an open primary. She happened to squeak through and she won. And because people didn't maybe know about the full extent of the craziness and also because it was a heavily Republican district, she won. But she is not going to win another election. And that's the, I think that is a, a pretty safe prediction for me to make here in February of 2021. And Liz Cheney is going to continue to be an important force in public politics, and, and the, the normals are going to continue to make their case. I've been disappointed about some people who are unwilling to accept reality and are kind of um, flirting with the nuttiness on the other side when they know better. Right. And, you know, I think there are some people in the House who are just truly in the nut category. But there are others who know better and are flirting with the nut category, and, and I think those people deserve more denunciation. Okay, let's uh, talk. And we're talking to Tevi Troy here on Spin Class, the author of Fight House, uh, rivalries in the uh, White House, a history of them. Uh, I know it's tough to put the Trump 45 White House in historical context. You might have to write your own book about that solely. But uh, talk for a second about that. Every, every White House has its share of rivalries, of backbiting, of leaking, of nastiness, uh, that goes on amongst the staff of, uh, of competition. We can call it, uh, you know, give, give the for of your, of your take on why that is, why that's so with these highly ambitious people and, uh, how that either contributes or detracts from getting the people's business done. There's always fighting in the white house. If you look at the famous musical Hamilton. They're talking about the rap battle between Hamilton and Jefferson. Obviously, it wasn't a rap battle, but <laughs> those guys were at each other's throats. Uh, Lincoln's cabinet, you had the famous team of rivals. What I did in my book, In Fight House, is I looked at rivalry since the advent of the White House staff. And it really starts under Truman full-time. 
And I look at this dynamic when you have people who are next to the president, who have the president's ear, who is, let's say, the national security advisor, while at the same time there's a secretary of state, and each thinks that they should be in charge of foreign policy. One is in the White House, the other is six blocks away in Foggy Bottom, and there's inherent tension there. And I looked at that tension, and I looked at that conflict, and I looked at every single administration from Truman until the previous administration. I didn't get to look at Biden yet, because obviously it hasn't happened, but I look forward to writing a future article or chapter on Biden, because there's going to be fighting. The question for a president is, you know there's fighting, how are you going to manage it? And some people have managed it better than others. But at its worst, fighting can lead to dysfunction and paralysis, because nobody trusts anyone, and you feel like anything you say in a private meeting is going to end up on the front page of the New York Times or Washington Post. At its best, you can have some creative tension where people from different perspectives can try and hash out the best approach for moving forward and getting the president to a better place. So I think tension is naturally there. You mentioned highly ambitious people. I say alpha males and alpha females. Uh, high stakes, uh, jobs that really matter, close quarters, short time frames. All this stuff makes for an environment where there's going to be fighting. And that's why I thought Fight House would be a good topic for a book. And it was. And the, um, my motto in writing the book was the pettier the better. The pettier the fight, the pettier the activity or the tactics used against each other, the better. Because the stories, they're, they're human stories. They're really fascinating stories about nasty things people did to each other. I'll give one quick story that I think your audience will appreciate. Henry Kissinger is the National Security Advisor under Nixon. William Rogers is the Secretary of State and someone who's closer to Nixon, but someone who, who Kissinger is constantly outmaneuvering. And at one point, Kissinger is dating the Bond girl, a famous actress named Jill St. John. Now, despite her name, St. John, she's actually Jewish, which is funny in itself. Oh, that part I didn't it know. It shows up <laughs> in the papers that Kissinger is dating Jill St. John. Kissinger goes to Nixon and complains that his rival Rogers has leaked this information to the press. But the truth is that Kissinger leaked the information. A, because he wanted people to know he's dating an attractive Bond girl, but B, because he wanted to make Rogers look like a leaker, and Nixon, as we know, hated leakers. In fact, Nixon hated leakers so much that he created this group called the Plumbers to root out the leaks, and the Plumbers were the group that actually ended up to leading to the Watergate break-in and destroyed his presidency. Right. So that's how much Nixon hated leaks, and Kissinger knew exactly what Nixon hated and took advantage of it. So how would you rate the uh, the White House that we just sit, we just saw in the Pantheon? And obviously it changed. I mean, there was tremendous amount of staff turnover uh, in the in the Trump forty five White House. Um, I, I I guess I mean I don't know. I would call it abnormal. Maybe it's not. I mean I I've you know I've said a couple times on this show that I thought that was his biggest uh, underachievement was uh, was personnel. And dealing with personnel, but we, you had, I mean, between national security advisors, between other staff, I mean, just constant tur turnover and seemed like turmoil. Uh, it, I mean, what's the what's the inside view? Not that you were inside the White House, but you know, the inside perspective Maybe of somebody who was the extreme edge of normal, right? I mean, there's a range of infighting in every White House, and I actually have a chart in the book that looks at each White House and the different ways in which you can characterize it and categorize it and measure it. And so he was, uh, there are three things that I look at in terms of infighting. Number one is ideological disagreement. Number two is having a fair and clean process where decisions can get made in an orderly way. And number three is presidential tolerance. 
does the president tolerate this kind of stuff? And on all three, that previous White House does not rate well in terms of there was a lot of ideological disagreement, there was not a clean process, and the president showed tolerance for it. Other, pre other presidents had a mix on, on the three. So in that sense, it was at the extreme end of, of normal is how, how I characterize it in the book. I will learn more when the archives open and we get the oral histories. And what I did in the previous administration is I had more access to information. In this one, I just had journalistic sources. And part of what was going on is the journalists loved the narrative of fighting in this White House and they, they, they played it up. That doesn't mean it wasn't there, but it was definitely something that they wanted to focus on. Whereas in the Obama administration, they kind of papered over the fighting that was there. There was less fighting in the Obama White House, but you also had the press not looking at it as carefully. And let me just make one other point, and this relates to what we were talking about in terms of uh, disagreements within the Republican Party. I think what you saw in the outgoing White House or the previous White House was that on the issues where Republicans agree, there was less infighting. So on judges and on Israel and on cutting regulations and on lowering taxes, there, according to what the press report said, there was less fighting. However, on the issues in which there is broader Republican disagreement, there was also disagreement in this White House. And what were those issues? There was a lot of infighting about how to handle the pandemic, a lot of infighting about trade, a lot of infighting about um, uh, immigration. Those three issues seem to lead to most of the fighting. And then also on this question of the reality-based community, right, the, uh, whether there was an election loss or not. So I think on the issues in which there's broader Republican and conservative disagreement, there is more fighting, and on issues where there's general alignment within the Republican conservative world, there is less fighting. I want to spend two seconds with a question on leaks, because that's always fascinating to the public and anybody who follows politics. I mean, leaking is clearly the bread and butter of, uh, of the Washington Post, New York Times, uh, and everybody else who covers, sorry, Axios Political, Politico, everybody else out there. I mean, they, they, they thrive and survive on leaks, so obviously they're played up. But did this did, did Trump's White House leak more than others? Uh, I mean, you know, it did seem. I mean, you had a phenomenon like Anthony Scaramucci, uh, and you know that came that came about. Um, I, I mean, they have the famous meeting with Sean Spicer of uh, you know having a meeting and taking everybody's phone about leaks, and two minutes later, you know that's leaked to the press, right? I mean, and. Uh, well, the interesting thing on Scaramucci, I mean, you mentioned Scaramucci, what he did was he came in and he tried to get rid of leaks. Right? I mean, obviously right. he only lasted 11 days and there was all that. Um, and his big downfall was calling Ryan Lizza, the reporter, and yelling at him and somehow thinking it might be off the record. Which was, and that, that was inexperienced more than uh, that he's... he's uh, he, and, and that call, he was trying to root out a leak because Lizza had found out something about a, that Guilfoyle dinner that was happening at the White House, and Lizza wrote about it, and uh, Scaramucci was trying to find out who was the source of that. So uh, Scaramucci was one of these periodic people you see in White House histories who try to root out leaks, usually unsuccessfully, because it's very hard to stop leaks. But look, reporters, they're going to play with whatever they get. So in this administration, or the previous administration, they said, oh, look, it's such a disorganized White House, they wouldn't leak. But in the Bush administration, when I served, there was very little leaking, and the reporters complained, oh, they're so hyper-disciplined and uptight, they don't even leak to the press. So whatever you do, the reporters are going to be, uh, are going to make you look bad if you're a Republican administration. There's clearly more leaking in this administration than in the Bush administration, certainly on the domestic side where I served. On the foreign policy side, you did see more leaking in the Bush administration, uh, especially from uh, Colin Powell's State Department, where the, uh, you know, you had these big fights between Powell and Rumsfeld, 
but they weren't normal fights in that Powell and Rumsfeld screamed at each other. In fact, they almost never, according to my research, raised their voices at each other. What would happen is they would have a meeting, Rumsfeld would say what he wanted to do, Powell wouldn't respond, and then he would leak to the Washington Post that he didn't like what Rumsfeld was doing, which was incredibly frustrating to Rumsfeld because Rumsfeld felt like he could win an argument if they were face on, but he was constantly facing with this idea that Powell was letting it be known that he was unhappy with administration policy, but was not speaking up in the meetings and making clear what his objections were. Okay, so Tevi, in addition to Fight House, you're also the author of the book, Shall We Wake the President, uh, which is about disaster management, but, you know, crisis, crisis management in the, in, in, in the White House in presidential history. Uh, you're also Deputy Secretary of HHS. So let's talk about the coronavirus pandemic as we, uh, as we close this out and, and the response to it. And uh, from an insider's perspective, I mean, I think personally uh, that is for any other reason. And, you know, I think there's some exit polling that bears that out more responsible for than any other item that for Donald Trump not being a one term president. And uh, apparently he was warned by his own staff. That seems to be uh, out there and, you know, didn't rise to the occasion. Yeah. Can I make a point on that? Of the Please. voters who thought that coronavirus was the lead issue. They broke three to one for Biden. I mean, incredible. And many of whom who had voted for Trump in 2016, it seems. So the the voters who thought coronavirus was key, they and look, 400 plus thousand Americans have died tragically over this. So a lot of Americans and everybody's lives were disrupted either psychologically or economically or both. So the voters who thought this mattered, they clearly went in, in the Biden direction. And look, these things are hard to manage. It's hard to handle a pandemic that is airborne, transmissible human to human, and that has asymptomatic spread. We just weren't prepared for this kind of thing. We're much better if there's symptomatic spread, if you can test it, and we're much better if we have the, uh, the, the either the vaccine or some kind of countermeasure in advance. We have a strategic national stockpile that helps us deal with things like flu. We did not have these things for coronavirus. In fact, I warned in that very book, in, in Shall We Wake the President, in 2016, I warned about the problem of coronavirus, not this particular strain, obviously, because it didn't exist at the time. But I said that coronavirus is something SARS, MERS. Prepared at this moment. Right. Right. SARS, MERS. Uh, I said we don't have a vaccine. We don't have a vaccine platform for it, meaning an adaptable way to make a vaccine quickly. And we don't have an antiviral. And it was a real problem. So given that, we were, we were bound to have a bad bout of coronavirus no matter what. But there are ways to handle it better and there are ways to handle it worse. So even within, uh, you know, if I could squeeze one more question in here, even within the coronavirus task force, there seems to have been a fight house rivalry driven environment. I've, as we, I guess we've seen afterward, both Fauci and Burks have given interviews about how how difficult it may, well, let's put it this way, how they were at times sidelined in favor of Scott Atlas, for example. Um, I, I mean, that seems to be from a lot of perspective how President Trump did business and had rivalries and different viewpoints and liked people to find it out. But does that work when you're confronting such a, uh, such a crisis? Look, sometimes in crisis is, is when you have the most intense disagreements because the stakes are so high. But in this kind of uh, high school stuff of shutting certain people out and saying, oh, we're not going to listen to you. You can't come to the meetings. I mean, you've got to have the right people 
at the meetings at the right time, who have certain types of knowledge, who can impart that knowledge and let you know to how to make the best and most informed decisions. So uh, it's, it's really not the best way to run the railroad. It's not the best way to deal with a disaster like this. But again, as I said, very challenging situation, asymptomatic spread. I'm glad we now have a vaccine. We're not doing great on the distribution of the vaccine yet, although I hope we turn that around. Uh, Israel is over 50% and counting. Uh, my brother's whole family has gotten the vaccine when in America, my 90 year old father still hasn't gotten it. So uh, we need to sort this out and we need to sort it out quickly, but I'm optimistic that we can get there. Well, hopefully he will. Uh, and uh, hopefully, you know, one thing I think is concerning is overall is vaccine hesitancy uh, amongst people. Once it be actually becomes available, uh, I think that that is a, uh, something that needs to be uh, surmounted. Uh, again, goes back to our fact-based uh, approach to things. Tavi, I really appreciate your time, your perspective. I can't wait for the, uh, for the uh, you know, comprehensive historical view of the Trump presidency to come out. Uh, one last question as we talk about presidential history. Presidential, uh, where will the Donald, Trump, Donald J. Trump presidential library be cited? I think there's a chance that there is no library uh, on two sides. One is there is already an op-ed by a, a Democrat, I believe, in the Washington Post, saying let's not give him a presidential library it's a privilege it's an honor and so you're and and there is some government funding that goes into these things so you might have opposition to it on that end uh, but also on the former president's end he's got to do some hard work in terms of raising a lot of money and you know i would assume that it's harder to raise money after the debacle of the last few months and it, it takes work it takes thought it takes planning uh it's not so easy to make it happen. So I'm, I'm not convinced that there is one. But if there is one, it'll probably be in Florida. Okay. Well, thank you very much, Tevi Troy. One last uh, uh, political note. Yesterday, there was a special election for city council in your old stomping grounds of Central Queens, uh, the uh, 24th Council District. Normally, I wouldn't talk about this on you know, when we talk about national perspective. But I will say there was a mainstream Democrat candidate, this is a special election, so no party labels, running against a socialist progressive who was endorsed by Bernie Sanders at all, all these stars of the, uh, of the uh, Democratic left. Uh, and she did not even get a thousand votes. Uh, the mainstream candidate, Jim Gennaro, a former councilman, came in about 60 percent. Uh, so, look, when we all think about the socialist takeover of America, perhaps uh, one little thing happened in central Queens uh, yesterday to uh, kind of point the country towards the center. So uh, I tell think that's your why. tell me why. People in Queens have common sense, like my late mother. They just have common sense. They may not be the biggest intellectuals in the world, but they just have a good sense of what's going on, and they're well-grounded. Go Queens. Go Queens. Okay, well, on that note, that's it for Spin Class here on the Knock'em Siegel Network. Stay tuned for Jew with the City Speaks. With Allison Joseph, see you next week.